We will now read from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 2. Lord's Day 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism, where the Church confesses the following. From where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you keep all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. After the sermon, we will respond by singing from Psalm 130. Psalm 130, the second stanza. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, boys and girls, that includes you, covenant children of the church. As you probably know, Lord's Day 2 is one of the easiest Lord's Days to memorize, right? From where do you know your sin and misery? I asked some of the catechism students that on Wednesday evening, even though that wasn't their memory work, and they knew the answer from the law of God, right? It's short, it's easy to remember. Can you keep all this perfectly? No, because by nature I hate God and my neighbor. It's easy to learn. But it's not so easy to swallow, is it? It's one thing to confess this when you're in the catechism class or you're in church. But then when you leave church and you're out in the parking lot, then it's pretty easy to forget that this is the reality of our confession. After all, we know many people who are perhaps unbelievers, maybe some of our neighbors, maybe even family members who lead pretty decent lives. So can it really be this bad? But here in Lord's Day 2, we confess that by nature we hate God and our neighbor. Congregation, this, this is a reality check for all of us. And it's one that we need on a regular basis. We need to be reminded again and again that it's in our nature to turn our back on God and live completely selfishly. But at the same time, this is a confession that is saturated with the gospel. Because no one who remains in their old nature, no one who is an unbeliever can confess this. This is the confession of, that only a believer can make. Only someone who is regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And so... When we confess this, we may also believe this. Believe that the good news of Jesus Christ is a reality for those who confess their sin and misery. And we will consider this in the light of God's law, in the light of God's love, and in the light of the incarnation of the Son of God. Of course, it's true for 
many people that they know that this is not a perfect world. You don't have to believe in God to understand that we don't live in a perfect world. There are many secular people who understand that too. You don't need faith in Christ to understand that there is something broken in this world. However, you cannot come to a true understanding of this brokenness unless you know God, unless God reveals it to you. If you don't know God and you don't believe his holy law, then the only thing you can do is compare yourself to other people. And when you compare yourself to someone else, you can always tweak the results to make yourself smell better than the other guy. After all, you're not the worst criminal in the world, are you? But our confession forces us not to compare ourselves to others, but to the word of God. If we leave God's word out of it, then our life would be very dark indeed. If we don't shine the light of God's word onto our lives and into our lives, then the darkness of sin will not be revealed. It won't become visible. But the intense light of God's word exposes our sin and our misery. It's one of the reasons why we listen to the Ten Commandments every Sunday morning. Then you learn how much you fall short of what God requires of you. But we shouldn't limit the law of God to the Ten Commandments, right? When we speak of the law of the Lord, we need to realize it includes all of God's word. It includes everything that God tells us. It includes the gospel of Christmas, that the Lord Jesus Christ had to humble himself in order to redeem us from our sin and misery. The best way to recognize your sin and misery is to see and understand why the Son of God came to earth. Understand the horrific and repulsive event that happened on Golgotha so many years ago. We can also learn to recognize and understand our sin and misery by learning from the history of God's people. We can do that, by, for example, by considering the passages that we read from Genesis. In Genesis chapter 8, the Lord says, He will never again curse the ground because of man. He will never strike down every living creature as he had just done with the flood. And the Lord says this, even though he would have good reason to do so, says in chapter 8, I will never do that, even though I know that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So God's word tells us here that we are all, by nature, evil, malevolent human beings, criminally minded. It's, it's in our DNA. And, then, and just think about when God says this. He had, he had just destroyed all the wicked people who lived before the flood. We read from Genesis 6 too, which tells us that there was a time when the earth was corrupt and filled with violence. And so the Lord destroyed the world. And, and, and we could probably think, well, that's understandable, right? We might even consider that was, that was just on God's part. But then the earth is barely dry and God repeats his opinion of mankind. The intention of his heart is evil from his youth. And only the believer Noah and his family were saved. And the Bible tells us in chapter 6, verse 9, that Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless among his generation. So you would think then that maybe after the flood, all, all the godlessness and all the unbelief had vanished. God had cleaned up the earth. 
And then the Lord promises that he will never wash the earth clean like that again. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't promise that because, well, now mankind is so good. Mankind has changed. I've cleaned up the world. No. God says the intention of his heart is evil from his youth. And Noah and his family are included in that statement. That might sound a little off to our ears. Is that really true? Wasn't he a righteous man? Doesn't the Bible say of Noah in Hebrews 11 that he lived by faith? And yet if God includes Noah among those whose hearts are evil from their youth, what would the Lord say about us? The same thing. History records in the Bible that the history recorded in the Bible clearly shows that after the flood, man continued to sin, murder, deceit, robbery, all kinds of things. And then the arrogant attempt to build a tower that would reach up to heaven. Sinfulness, congregation, is in our blood. And that counts for everyone. It's true of our unbelieving neighbors, but it's also true of everyone who faithfully comes to church every Sunday. But at the same time, we have to keep in mind that those who confess the truth of Lord's Day 2 have already confessed Lord's Day 1. We never forget that when we go through the catechism. We've always confessed Lord's Day 1. We confess that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. So we're no longer enslaved to Satan or to sin. We confess we're not completely free from the effects of sin, but we are no longer slaves of sin. And we have to keep that in mind. Keep that in mind when we also leave the church building after a church service. It's important to remember this every day of our lives. Remember this when you make decisions. Don't assume that just because you are a believer, you always make right choices. As followers of Christ, we are called to be holy. That means we are called out of this world, out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the kingdom of Satan, and into the kingdom of light, into the church. And this Lord's Day reminds us to think about that. Do we really separate ourselves from the world? Is that really how we live? Separate ourselves from worldliness? Is it evident in the way we live, in the way we talk, in the way we raise our children, that we are separated, that we are holy, that we have joined the communion of Christ? Of course, we say that we have been redeemed. We confess that. We are saved by the blood of Christ. But then we also have to confess that in the way we live, with childlike faith and in humility, realizing that our righteousness is not a righteousness of our own, but we are righteous in Christ alone. And we all still have a lot to learn. And so when we consider our sin and misery in the light of God's law, then we need to take that seriously. But we also have to consider our misery and our sin in light of God's love. God's law exposes our our sin and our sinfulness, but it's not merely meant to expose our sin. You see, the law is also the law of love, as Christ teaches us in the summary of the law. Now, we might ask ourselves, well, why didn't the authors of the Catechism put put the Ten Commandments in Lord's Day too? 
After all, wouldn't that be much more effective in exposing our sins? Isn't it much easier to compare your life to a list of do's and don'ts than a simple summary of the law? And we might be inclined to think so, because that's our nature. The Pharisees in the New Testament, they they thought that way too. By the time that Christ came to earth, the Pharisees had added hundreds of laws to the Old Testament laws. For example, they added many laws about what you could and could not do on the Sabbath day. How much you could cook. How far you were allowed to walk. How much you were allowed to carry on the Sabbath day. And, and we, we might have a tendency to mock them for that a little bit. But there is something to be said about their zeal for keeping the law. Their zeal to live righteously. And this wasn't simply because they thought they could obtain perfection... Their intent with adding the law, adding to the law, was to protect themselves from sin. They reasoned that if if you broke one of those smaller laws, then you were still you still have had not sinned against the actual commandment itself. The problem with coming up with a huge list of do's and don'ts is, is that pretty soon you have to decide which laws carry more weight. And the Pharisees fell into that trap too. They began to differentiate between greater and lesser sins. And then the result is that then you begin begin to judge things outwardly. And one time Jesus accused them of this. The Pharisees approved of church members who gave a lot of money to the synagogue. And they approved of those people who gave money to the synagogue but neglected taking care of their elderly parents. They pitted one good work off against another. In another example, being uncircumcised was a grave sin, but stealing an apple from somebody's tree was not considered very seriously. But if you think of that, that's all that Adam and Eve did too, didn't they? They just took a piece of fruit. But in reality, it was much more serious than that. The real issue in the Garden of Eden had to do with the state of their hearts and their intentions. The real issue was whether or not Adam and Eve loved the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind. And in this regard, of course, they failed miserably. And that's true of us as well, congregation. If we start with a big list of rules and regulations, it's not that hard to give ourselves a passing grade. I dare say that most of the Pharisees were able to keep the letter of the law with an above average grade. And maybe you think your score is pretty good too. Maybe you even give yourself a 70 or an 80% grade in keeping the commandments, keeping most of God's law most of the time. But the Lord puts a big red check mark through that grade. You see, the Lord doesn't give us a chance to obey one law at the expense of another. Both are of equal value. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so we don't need to hear a sermon of fire and brimstone that comes thundering at us from the pulpit. Because the summary of the law very effectively and quietly exposes what lives in our hearts.
Think of it this way. Imagine if we all fulfilled the summary of the law. What if we loved the Lord with all our soul and all our heart and all our might and we did it all the time? What would that look like? What if we all did what the Lord asks of us all the time? What if going to church on Sunday, what if that was always the best day of your life? What if we all loved our neighbor the way Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13? What if we were always kind and patient? What if you never boasted? What if you never said an arrogant word in your life? You never insisted on having your own way. You were never irritable, never resentful, always ready to forgive, always thinking the best of others. Can you imagine that? You see, congregation, the law is not just about outward behavior. It's about the heart. To love the Lord is to acknowledge His love for you. And to love Him above all others and all other things is is to trust Him with everything that you have and everything that you are. To love the Lord means you never want to disappoint Him. And you want to submit yourself to His will. And if there's anything that gets in the way of doing that, you're going to get rid of it. As the author to the Hebrews says, put off everything, every burden that prevents you from running the race. So in reality, the law, the summary of the law too, requires much of us, doesn't it? God expects much of us. And, and if we think about that, then maybe we're ready to throw up our hands and, you know, forget it. There's no way I can do this. After all, by nature, we hate God and our neighbor. So how can God expect this much of me? How can he expect me to be righteous? But before we throw up our hands in defeat and before we accuse God of asking too much of us, We need to confess that the Lord has the right to expect this of us. The truth is, I am such a miserable sinner that I cannot fulfill the law of love. I can't. But wouldn't it be a great thing if the Lord would find that in me? If he would find that kind of love in me? Wouldn't it be wonderful if the Lord would find righteousness in me? And of course it would be. And it can happen, congregation. It can happen and it does. And that brings us to our third point. Consider your misery and your sin in the light of the incarnation of the Son of God. Before we get there, let's first go back in our thoughts to what we read about Noah. Because in the life of Noah, we see evidence of God's grace and mercy. In spite of the fact that God knew Noah's heart... After the flood, God still wanted to continue to have a relationship with Noah. The Lord knew the sin and misery in the life of Noah, and yet he said he would never curse the earth again. What would motivate God to continue working with Noah? 
with this, with this sinful man. What in the world would motivate God to do this? Well, there's nothing in the world that would motivate God to do this. There's nothing in Noah, there's nothing in you or me or in our lives or even in our, our faith to give God a reason to continue his relationship with us. There's only one possible answer to that question, what motivates God, and that is his goodwill towards men. The Lord is motivated by his great love because there is no person on earth who is worthy of his love, worthy of his goodwill. It is merely his love that moves him to have goodwill toward us. And we see evidence of that after the flood too. Noah built an altar and he sacrificed some clean animals on that altar as an offering to God. Symbolizing the offering of the clean for the unclean. And with that sacrifice, Noah had to admit his own uncleanness. The only thing that he could do was offer God animals that God had said, these are clean. And the miracle was that God accepted that offering. God accepted that sacrifice. And when he accepted Noah's offering, he also gave Noah a guarantee that he would never again destroy the earth. So the sacrifice congregation of those clean animals points ultimately to our Lord Jesus Christ. He is and remains the only clean man who ever lived. And he drank the cup of God's wrath until it was completely empty. And in his great love for God, he brought that sacrifice. He gave himself as a sacrifice. And it was because of that sacrifice, which Christ made for us, that God was willing to continue his relationship with Noah and his descendants, with us and our children. It's because of Christ's sacrifice that God is willing to be busy with us. He lets us live. He allows this world to exist. He keeps the seasons going. Summer follows the winter and day follows the night. And the Lord does this because he is busy working towards a goal. The new heavens and the new earth. He keeps the world going so that he can bring his children to paradise. And he does this not because we are so good. And certainly not because the misery and the sin in the world isn't really such a big deal to him. If the sin and misery in this world wasn't such a big deal, God would never have sent his son to take care of it. And if it wasn't such a big deal, Christ would never have humbled himself. And the Son of God would never have taken on human flesh and blood. So you see, it's in the incarnation of the Son of God, in the Son of God becoming human flesh, that we see how bad our sin and misery really is. It's so bad, it's so bad, that God had to take care of it himself. There was no other way. Christ had to come in the flesh, so that a man of flesh could endure the wrath of God. Christ had to live in our misery so that we have a future without misery. For our sake, the Bible says, for our sake God made his own son to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
And that's why Noah could be called a righteous man in his generation. And that's the only way that we are righteous in the sight of God. When we believe in the Son of God, God looks upon us as if we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. By faith in Christ, His righteousness is yours. His holiness is yours. God gave Noah a guarantee that he would never destroy the world again. He put his rainbow in the sky and he said to Noah, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And I will remember the everlasting covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. That guarantee was only possible because one day Christ would come and he has come, congregation. God not only keeps his promise to keep the world going, but he keeps his promise to bring redemption to his people. And so if you really think about it, that rainbow was much more than a sign to Noah. Not only a sign of God's promise to Noah, that rainbow was really a sign of Christmas. The incarnation of the Son of God is the crowning fulfillment to the promise that God made to Noah. And one day, the ultimate climax of God's promise will be fulfilled when all of God's people will live on the new heavens and the new earth to be with their Savior forever. So yes, Lord's Day 2 gives us a good dose of reality. It's a reality check we all need, but it's also a reality check that's filled with good news. Because when we confess our sin and misery in the light of God's word, in the light of his love, in the light of Christ's coming in the flesh, it can only be good news. My dear brothers and sisters, may that encourage us also in the coming week and every day of our lives. Amen.